Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of A Lawyer and a Policy Analyst Walk Into a Bar. This is episode two, the second week, and uh, we just want to thank everyone again for all of their positive comments from our first episode. It was a lot more than we expected and we are completely overwhelmed and happy with the response that we got. I am the lawyer, Jadrick Cummings. I am the Policy Analyst, Delano D'Souza. Today we want to discuss uh, CBIs or Citizenship by Investment Program. Um, there are different names. We want to touch on that topic. And later on, we also want to discuss the recent ruling by the CCJ in relation to cross-dressing yeah, in cross-dressing. Guyana and how that law has been struck from Guyana's um, books. Really, I guess we can get into it, um, perhaps getting into what is a CBI? What, is, what, are, what are those programs? Delano, I know they have different names, um, golden visas, etc. But really, what are CBI programs? Yeah, Jadrick, um, in relation to the citizenship by investment, it's called by a lot of names. Uh, they call it golden visas, golden passports. Uh, they have different terminology. Uh, some call it economic citizenship programs, ECPs, immigrant investor programs, IIPs, citizenship by investment, CBI, and residency by investment schemes, RBI. So there are a lot of names for it historically and across the region, across the globe. And really it deals with the selling of residency to investors, uh, high net worth individuals, you know. But the question really uh, at the crux of this discussion is, you know, they say that there are some things that money can't buy and really should citizenship be one of those things uh, we know that there are national schemes designed to attract foreign investment across the globe and, and, and a lot of countries Derek and yep. some of these schemes um, offer residency or citizenship right in exchange for sizable investment these have increased dramatically over the past decade countries like Australia and the United States or the United Kingdom have offered residency rights in exchange for investment since the 1980s and the 1990s in the Caribbean context in Kits and Nevis have had their citizenship by investment program since 1984 so yeah. that's quite some time <laughs> yeah that's that's just a year after they became independent yeah, yeah very much so. so an October 2008 report of the European Parliament Research Service um, concluded that today such programs exist in many European countries including the United Kingdom Italy Croatia France Lithuania and these countries while they may have more stringent requirements uh, other European countries like Bulgaria Cyprus uh, Estonia Italy Latvia Malta etc uh, they have less stringent requirements that can ultimately lead to citizenship as well. There are three schemes currently which offer citizenship, uh, which in the case of Europe offers de facto EU citizenship, which is a major contention of some of the countries, as you know. Right. Similar to in CARICOM, in the Caribbean context, where um, holders of Grenada and other passports, other countries that practice citizenship by investment, they are essentially Car- um, CARICOM citizens. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's one of the big um, arguments as well. The fact that because of you know CARICOM and CSME, as a holder of one of these passports, then you're able to essentially travel through CARICOM. And even the mighty US uh, they have the EB-5 immigrant investor program which offers a route to residency and some, in some cases citizenship yeah. albeit with an actual or longer residency requirements than other countries and you really have two options where you can create a new enterprise in, in the US or you can invest in a regional center uh, investment of um, I think between 500,000 US to a million dollars or create full-time employment for at least 10 qualified US workers etc I say that to say that the, the, these programs are not new yeah, not are they limited to the Caribbean and that's important for this discussion these programs exist in the US and in the UK in Europe all over the world these programs exist and that's important for our listeners to note I think that kind of takes us in or ties us into the first point that we wanted to discuss and that is how sustainable are these programs like Delano said they have been in existence for some time in St. Kitts since 1984 in the USA since the 1990s so you know how sustainable are these programs yeah um, currently Antigua and Barbuda Dominica Grenada St. Louis 
Ocean Sink. It's the countries within the Caribbean region uh, and particularly in OECS that have citizenship by investment programs and other countries have been accused of running what, what, what term as unofficial uh, citizenship by investment programs since some high profile investors of other countries have from time to time obtained citizenship under less than transparent circumstances. And, you know, it's gotten to the point, Jadrick, that there is now a, a ranking of national right. passports by, by Henley and Partners which kind of speaks to which passports are more powerful than others, which nationalities have the, uh, have better passports, how many countries can you travel to, visa-free, what are the developments in the, in, in, in the country that you have citizenship in. So it, it's really just become a competition now in terms of selling uh, your, your passport or your citizenship. There's a parallel that possibly can be drawn compared to global recruiting practices uh, where we have some countries have for years been trying to attract talent or you know the most educated persons into their country by offering them citizenship, right. offering them residency, etc. So almost kind of encourage persons to leave their country to take up residency or citizenship in another country in hopes of it boosting their human capital development and then eventually their economic development. Right. Yeah. And then if you're selling your passport, what are the benefits to the people for buying the passport? For an economic citizen, what are the benefits for them? And I and I think we alluded to one before, Jadrick, in, in securing residency rights um, for a second passport, which allows them access to other destinations with good quality life and, yeah. and high level of education. Right, education and um, job opportunities for their children as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's something big in Europe in these European nations that practice this. It's something that they say, okay, you know what, let me try to get into the UK because of better education, better job opportunities for my children, etc, etc. And in perhaps the case of Turkey, just to escape the political turmoil mm-hmm. that's going mm-hmm. on in the region, you know, yeah. you would try to become a part or get into these nations. Yeah, yeah, to kind of avoid the whole conflicts that are happening even in the Middle East, etc. Yeah. A lot of high net worth individuals from these uh, war-torn countries exactly, um, yeah. do try to find citizenship elsewhere. There are legitimate reasons, you know, good legitimate reasons for persons to become citizens, who want to become, become citizens, citizens in other countries. Definitely. Yeah, and um, like Delano said as well, you know, um, the passport ranking, you know, it ranks the visa-free travel um, among different jurisdictions and that's something that persons consider as well. Okay, if I become a citizen of this country, then I'm able to travel more freely and, you know, nothing is wrong with that and that's something that a lot of persons consider when they're making these applications and mm-hmm. um, which jurisdictions yeah, they, should yeah. be, they should join. Yeah, definitely because it then becomes that you want to visit Canada, your 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 country of birth, of birth you require a visa if you get a, a passport for uh, for let's say one of the countries in the Caribbean for example that doesn't require a visa to travel to Canada then that's an incentive and the next incentive would be to seek to achieve or get into a, a more preferential tax, tax regime or tax domain to manage your expenditure that one is sort of controversial because it almost smacks of um, tax avoidance uh, uh, you know right correct uh, yeah. which I know that some organizations um, try to monitor that practice like the organization for economic cooperation and development yeah. You know, and they have um, their CRS reporting and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But that is something that critics cite as a reason for not engaging in CBI practices and programs and regimes. Mm-hmm. And then, having discussed the benefits to the economic citizen, what are the benefits to the host country? Why sell your passport? Why sell your citizenship? There are a lot of ideological and philosophical uh, debates that surround the whole notion of selling your passport. And I just want to touch on one briefly. That has to do with, you know, the whole notion of you selling your identity for money when this is something 
something that's really intangible, there's something that is unique, it's something that belongs to I am Vincentian. I've been yeah, born in yeah. St. Vincent, I've been raised as a Vincentian in our culture, in our people, in our identity. You know, we know what it means to be a Vincentian. Exactly, you know, yeah. how can we justify selling that to somebody who, who who makes an investment into the into the country and then they get a passport? Does that really make them a Vincentian citizen? Uh, is it that we are selling out our history, our heritage, if we were to engage in a program like like this, like a CBI? And that's one of the questions. That's the, the hard fought debates, really. Yeah. And I know our Prime Minister here in St. Vincent has spoken, you know, ex- explicitly to that about the fact that we will not sell our passport. It is not something. It's not a commodity it to be sold. Yeah. And and it goes back to the, how we introduced the podcast today. There are some things that money can't buy, and really, should citizenship be one of those things? That's one of the major uh, debates that is currently going on in St. Vincent, and it's happening a lot across the world. But then the main benefits now to the country now would be financial. To be honest, uh, there, there is a direct financial benefit to the country of selling their passport from the receipt of money. Now, this is where other indirect benefits can accrue to the population of the country, and this is this is what we must understand. It's not just about money; it's about yeah, what money yeah. can buy, what money can bring to the country. That's true. Because a, a lot of it, the requirement of a lot of countries is an investment into infrastructure, um, into real estate in the the host country, and it's something that most CBI jurisdictions have in place. Even America with their EB-5 program. You know, one of the roots is an investment uh, in in real estate, really, or in a, a job. It must create at least um, ten jobs, I think, ten U.S. jobs. Yeah, yeah. So it's something that the countries that have these programs they try to ensure that okay, yes, you're buying citizenship, so to speak, but you're investing in the country and. Overall, at the end of the day, it would develop our nation. Mm-hmm. So that's the argument for it. Um, I know since uh, Grenada, they they have uh, two routes to it as well. You, know. uh, you can invest in real estate, right. or you, you can um, invest in a national transformation fund. Right. And in the case of um, investing in real estate, there's a requirement, I think, according to their website at least, for a single applicant of a US three hundred fifty thousand dollar contribution. There are also fees for the government, fifty thousand US, an application fee of fifteen hundred US, a due diligence fee of 5,000 a processing fee of another 1500 US so when you add this up this is a pretty penny yeah. this this is a lot of money and as we know this is in US and the conversion from US to East is around 2.7 2.7169 if you want to be precise <laughs> yeah. you know but it, it is a lot of money and that is for just one applicant for one passport yeah. and we and, and if you're able to sell a lot of that and, and it, mm-hmm. it, it, it adds up you know because I, I think um, I read somewhere that in St. Kitts the program accounted for was it 30% of their revenue for the year and I think it was 2015 mm-hmm. and in, I know in other jurisdictions in Dominica and so forth um, it might be even more than that I think it was 50% um, last year yeah. uh, after it was ravaged by the hurricanes and so forth and you could see the potential for that kind of investment and how it can really help and boost a country's economy. Yeah, definitely. In Grenada, uh, uh, you know, there, there's been over uh, 140 million US uh, raised. In 2006, 82 million was deposited into the National Transformation Fund Yeah, in 2016, yeah. you know. And, and this has been used for social programs, for special projects, educational programs, special needs, and so on. So there's, there's a lot that has been coming. In the case of St. Kitts, for example, who had their program since 1984, it is said that St. Kitts has raised over 
1.94 billion dollars from from citizenship by investment and you can see that because even even um throughout the years you can see that over 200 300 million dollars have been raised uh, cip in the case of antigua contributed uh, according to the antigua observer almost 300 million dollars in direct revenue and investments in in 2017 for for antigua now 300 million dollars to put that into context that is a lot oh yeah that, that is a lot that is a big chunk of our of our budget for yeah i think in, in some years our budget has been like 798 million you That's know 800 yeah. million dollars yeah. so when you when you can imagine that the cbi program has the potential to bring in 300 million dollars uh, in terms of revenue to a country it really begs the question of you know you could see why people and, and you could see why in our case in st vincent the opposition are proposing the creation of a citizenship by investment fund and i think to be fair as well i think the discussion in st vincent hasn't really taken foot yeah. i think it's really been on this sort of philosophical or ideological ground where we kind of say we shouldn't sell our citizenship Correct. but we really yeah. haven't started to discuss uh, you know i know the prime minister and i think uh, minister of finance um has called it a a race to the bottom yeah. and several other you know characterizations of a citizenship by investment program but really and truly uh, you know they haven't really gone into you know why in, at least in my opinion why you know why 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 we shouldn't be doing it and right. i think for me this discussion isn't really to choose sides as we usually say this is to, to kind of present both sides of the argument yeah throw it out there yeah but l- let me ask you delano as the analyst here i know that minister of finance he uh earlier in the year in parliament he indicated that okay you know there is no it's not a magic wand you know mm-hmm. it's not to say okay if we create this program that all our problems and all our troubles will go away am i oversimplifying it in that but what he's saying is that okay saying kids has this program antigua has this program yet their cdb loans are how many how many ever millions you know their bonds are how many ever millions and they have these programs and look they have these loans outstanding mm-hmm. am i oversimplifying it by saying okay yes they have these loans outstanding and they have these cbi programs but you could imagine what would happen if they didn't have the cbi programs mm-hmm. wouldn't they be in a far worse position or am i just looking at it too simply to be honest Jarek, i think it's a i think it's a, it's a good question it's a fair question and as you will know and this is just to provide a context in terms of the comparative development of our countries you will know that recently i spent three to four months in saint kitts uh, when i was attached to the eastern caribbean Easy, central right. bank and i would have spent that time in saint kitts and one of the things that really struck me with saint kitts is their development in terms of their infrastructure what they're spending i i would drive around saint kitts from day to day and i would say yo that's a nice project happening here those co- those condominiums are looking nice and i would say who's funding this and nine out of ten times the response would be cbi right and i say that to say you know compared to our country in terms of uh, you know our expenditure and infrastructure in, in in some ways like that we we could definitely use a boost yeah. you know i'm not yeah. i'm not saying and i have to remind this i'm not necessarily saying that i agree with the with the implementation of a citizenship by investment program but i'm saying that there are merits to it and there are disadvantages as well and we have to be cognizant of that now for me personally i think it's ticklish because in terms of the ideological perspective of selling your nationality i think i side with the with you know with the opponents in that way but in terms of the some of the benefits that that can be realized for a country i think you know it's something that should at least be discussed among the people the people should be educated about it and i guess that's why we're going this route but in terms of the, the simplification of it you when you look at sinkets for example i mean according to reports that they've just achieved the target of a debt to gdp ratio of 60 percent you know they, this is a country that has moved from having a over 150 percent debt to gdp ratio this is a country that's been to the imf i think not once but twice right. over the last 20 to 25 years right. or this is a country now that's now on track that you know the, the debt to gdp ratio is shrinking and a lot of that has to do with um with, with the cbi program and the revenues that they're getting from that you mentioned dominica earlier and 
the Prime Minister Roosevelt carried himself said that it is literally a lifesaver after Hurricane Maria because oh, yeah. over 52 percent of the revenue for, for the year after that came from CBI. From CBI. So you know, having lost some uh, an approximate of 226 percent of your GDP, you know, and then 52 percent of your revenue is coming from CBI. What would Dominica be without CBI? Yeah. You know, you have yeah. to ask yourself that question. So for us to just you know kind of you know kind of just push uh, the, the question of of CBI aside, you know, I think it at least warranted a discussion. We touched briefly on infrastructure, uh, infrastructural development. If you talk about things in terms of the hotels and so on, I think in, uh, in the case of Grenada, 10 hotels came to Grenada as a result of citizenship by investment. If you think about things yeah. and the fact that our um about room count now in terms of our hotel industry is, is desperately below capacity right. and we want right. to increase our hotels and so on, you know. Yeah. So That's these are things that we must, these are things that we must kind of, right. you know, discuss at least. Yeah, I think you put it on the table, especially in light of well, the recently developed international airport and driving traffic to St. Vincent, um, the development of hotels and that kind of infrastructure is desperately needed. And I think it's one of the reasons why these European flights don't want to come to St. Vincent, as far as I understand, at least yet. But you can imagine if we had that infrastructure in place already, then mm -hmm. I think more airlines and so forth would be willing to come on board and travel to St. Vincent. So the benefits are there, the economic benefits are there. Because even when Delano and I were discussing it beforehand um, last week and so forth, and he was telling me about uh, Antigua's position in relation to lowering tax yeah. or, or removing tax, um, PAYE, I think. You know, that's something that's that's a huge selling point. That's something that stuck out to me immediately. Yeah. You know, I don't know if Adelan has anything more to say on yeah, that I one. I mean, but. Just, just in terms of the, 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 I mean, we spoke about the financial benefits, but like I mentioned before, that's the direct ones. The indirect, the indirect ones are financial in nature, yes, but we can speak about things like employment. So, for example, when you're, when you're building hotels and you're building your construction, there is employment created both by the act of construction right. and then after you employ people in the hotel industry you employ other persons to act after these infrastructure projects become operational so that's one that's one aspect of it cbi and these other countries have created thousands of jobs for those countries and yeah. then there's a the social transformation projects as well i mean some countries in the OECS have been using cbi money to undertake socially beneficial programs including poverty alleviation uh, social assistance expansion of education etc so you know this is money that we might otherwise have to borrow we might there's opportunity costs, we might have to sacrifice something else to do these programs, but here it is in these other countries that have CBI now, mm -hmm. they're using CBI money for that. Issue also comes about of um, climate change and climate resilience funding. I think some of the countries now, I think example is Dominica, where they, they put in some of the CBI money towards uh, the climate resilience fund, right, and, right. You, know, you, you know, where they're trying to build their, the country's resilience and they're funding a lot of infrastructure projects surrounding that. And then tied to that as well is the issue of debt reduction, right. because if, you, if you're really meds it, if you really study it, if you don't have funding for these, chances are you're going to either have to borrow or raise taxes and so because these are necessary projects, you know, and the government has to continue to operate. So when we look at it in that way, what is actually doing it for these countries, at least the argument is from their perspective. And I know some people might be listening to this and say, I might be saying, boy, he really for this CBI thing, he pushing this thing hard. This is just how I am. I, I like to explain things from both angles and I like, yeah. as passionately as I as I like to discuss the, the merits or the merits of, of, of a particular topic, I, I like to look at both sides just as passionately. So, yeah. but I think I was mentioning the whole notion of debt reduction and the fact that you get, you, you know, you, you're able to borrow less money, you can bring down your debt to GDP ratio, you know, you can fund climate resilience projects. And I think we mentioned before Antigua, um, and I think Sink it doesn't have income tax as well. Although these countries may have, I think, a uh, 
a health uh, levy or uh, education levy, which is a form of taxation. It's not to say that you don't, you don't, you don't pay anything on your income necessarily. And you know, for a country like ours, and and I can speak frankly, a lot of our people here are very, we're not happy with our level of disposable income. I think Saint Vincent, while and I have to put the caveat that we, in comparison, we have maybe the lowest cost of living in in the in the OECS, but right. our salaries are also comparatively low as lowest well. Million. So you know, people feel the pinch. Yeah. I believe for many Vincentian, the prospect of maybe a further reduction because you know we yeah. have, we increased the threshold the other day PUI yeah. but yeah. even a, a, a reduction or abolition of um, PUI altogether you know that that would be something that would that would resonate with them oh yeah for sure you any know? kind of reduction I mean that allows persons to have more um, disposable income I mean that would be very well welcome yeah. you know that that would be welcomed by, by everyone really. so those are kind of like the main benefits for the host country for having the program but what are the risks before I move on to that I just want to touch on one more thing that for me as a somebody who's very anti- imperialist and anti-hegemony I, I you know Jerry, you know me you <laughs> yeah. know how I feel about these larger countries kind of yeah know, I know putting, this was coming uh-huh. putting their, their influence over uh, over the smaller countries and to me this is reminiscent of the 1990s when Caribbean countries like St. Vincent and so on we were thought in the process of diversifying our economy away from agriculture and including more tourism and financial services the offshore banking sector was blooming and, right. and then BAM we were blacklisted yeah. um, by, by again the same OECD and so on. So it's kind of reminiscent of that. And it, one can see the argument that whenever smaller countries like ours are finding like a little niche yeah. to carve out a way to help with their development yeah, and so on, then then the larger countries who always have similar programs, uh, in this case, who still have similar programs, wants to kind of uh, you know chuck a spoke in the wheel and say, "Bah, oh, yeah. you know, so your role, you know, this is tax avoidance, etc." So I always feel when I always feel feel the need to mention that so they're exerting, in my opinion at least, they you know they. they they want to control the way that the world develops and they want to control you know how, how our smaller countries develop and I think there's an element of that in this whole discussion and we can't miss that we can't for one second pretend like these bigger countries don't know that by blacklisting us they're affecting the growth of our economies yeah correct and so then what are the risks to the country we've seen recently that visa restrictions on passport is an issue some countries like in addition to the blacklisting that we've had before there, there is a risk that some countries would impose a, re- a visa requirement we saw that recently Canada impose one for Antigua, Antigua right. in relation to their citizenship by investment program etc and so that could kind of have an impact on the person the regular person who wants to travel before I, I didn't need a visa all of a sudden now I need a visa because of citizenship by investment exactly, etc yeah. in addition to that there's a reputational risk where the country is viewed unfavorably by um, by, by the international community for selling its identity mm-hmm. uh, and, and its nationality as we mentioned before that whole um, philosophical or ideological d- debate and then there, there's a risk of international sanctions as well well, I mean, there's the risk that that countries may impose financial sanctions or otherwise. If if any of the holders of our passport, you know, having bought a passport, you're found to be involved in money laundering, tax yeah. avoidance, or worse yet, financing terrorism, oh, yeah, which is sure. a major one. So we run that risk, of, and that's a big one. Yeah, that's a big. That, one. That, that's yeah. a big one right there. Because I mean, we look at if you look at sanctions, and I think the, the closest example of sanctions in the Caribbean is probably Cuba and Venezuela. Currently, most recently, how the U.S. sanctions is affecting their economy, yeah. even in terms of you know interacting with the, with the global financial system so we could see that it could have debilitating effects on a country if, if financial sanctions were to be imposed on a small country like St. Vincent the Grenadines are. but of course that has not happened yet in relation to CBI you know right, yeah. and, and so you know it, it's one of those things that that is up in the air there and then Jadrick there's also the potential for corruption um, you know CBI programs if they're not run transparently they could be an avenue for government officials to kind of line their own pocket to have individuals enrich themselves at the 
expense of the country right. and that's the biggest truth. The transparency is a must when it comes to a, a CBI program. So then Jadrick, in light of these risks, I, I really have to ask you, what is your opinion on St. Vincent and, and CBI? Can CBI be an engine of growth for St. Vincent and the Grenadines? And this is in light of competition from other countries that have CBI. This is in light of um, legislation that is required, um, transparent operation. This is in line with our hotel and tourism sector being um, underdeveloped comparatively. So maybe there's a, a niche there, opportunity there. You know, what, what are your thoughts on, on St. Vincent and the Grenadines and CBI? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we have discussed the economic advantages and so forth um, before. And like Delano just said, the there's a little niche, St. Vincent, the fact that we are untapped, you know, a bit unspoiled. We have the Grenadines. We don't have a lot of um, major hotels presently. So really, you can see that there is room for growth, room for expansion and room for investment. And it's something that I think we can we can market and we can sell, you know, a lot of, you know, wealthy individuals, those who engage in these programs, those who um, seek to benefit from these programs, they have room to invest. And that investment would definitely benefit St. Vincent, whether it's through, um, you know, the hotel, building of hotels, building of, you know, that kind of infrastructure that's lacking in St. Vincent, I can see that there's potential for growth there. So when you look at it at that angle, then yes, you know, I can say, hey, I want this, I'm in favor of this. I, you know, I don't oppose this, you know? Yeah, that's the next question I was gonna ask you. Do the benefits outweigh the risk? Right, and there is, you know, there is something about the, well, like you mentioned, transparent operation and so forth. I know that even America, with their program, with their EB-5 program, they were having the, I think it's Homeland Security or Accountability Office, they did an investigation and they were saying that their EB-5 program actually was exposed to high risks of fraud and uh, because they weren't able to effectively identify and monitor where these investment funds were coming from, whether they were legally obtained or not. And that's something that you have to look at because I think in Grenada, when you look at the Grenada's model, uh, one of the requirements, one of the personal requirements for uh, applicants who are seeking to be a part of the CBI programs, one of the personal requirements is that the investment, the funds, has to come from, from a legal source, right? And Well, do you verify that? Exactly. So if America of all places could have trouble verifying that, you would say, okay, they have a lot of resources, they have a lot of due diligence procedures, and you know, they have staff and resources to actually look into this thing. And if the accountability office in America was saying that they were susceptible to that kind of fraud, then hey, how can these smaller jurisdictions overcome that? Another personal requirement for applicants who are seeking citizenship through the CBI program is that you must not be a potential risk to national security. Now, obviously, they have their due diligence um, procedures and so forth, but what came out from America through their EB-5 program is that the Homeland Security discovered that there were individuals with possible ties to Chinese and I think Iranian um, intelligence intelligence agencies and international fugitives as well and they have in fact accessed the EB-5 program so you know that's another argument against it that's another criticism and you know it's a, it's a reasonable argument because it's something that we'd have to invest more in we'd have mm -hmm. to ensure that our due diligence procedures are up and up and you know pretty much impeccable you know in order to gain trust and ensure that everyone knows that hey our program is one of high standing and, and so forth you know but that, that's that, that's an issue Jared, because I mean when you meant it right look at Antigua recently there right I know right now before the court there's the, the Chusky the Chuxi case and forgive me for the pronunciation uh, the guy from India I believe who was accused of fraud in India and he's a citizen in um, Antigua now as a result of purchasing a passport you know and now there's an extradition process happening where they're trying to extradite him to, to, to back to India yeah. then there is the case of St. Lucia where I know recently I think I read seven or eight passports had to be rescinded the citizenship of these in, in individuals had to be rescinded you know for various reasons and so on but it kind right. of illustrates that all is not well with mm. CBI in terms of these transparency 
saying these these checks are, as to the, the background and the history oh, of yeah, the Africans. Yeah. So you know, should we then open ourselves to that risk? Tied to that, we have to make sure that if we what happened in Saint Vincent, and I think the ECCB, the government of the Central Bank, and so on, as well as the IMF, uh, have spoken several times. The experts have said that really and truly, CBI revenue should not be used for recurrent expenditure. Mm. It should be used for capital, capital expenditure. Yeah. And for the people who don't really know the difference, really put simply, recurrent things like salaries and, and things that you yeah. know you spend every year, salaries and Good wages sense, and so okay. on. Whereas capital is more like developmental projects in terms of infrastructure, etc. Yeah. And we really should be spending CBI money on capital expenditure as opposed to recurrent expenditure. Because then, you know, you, you don't want to create gaps in terms of, you don't want to say, okay, this year we, we can hire 100 more people and pay for that with CBI revenue. Because mm -hmm. next year, suppose we don't get that same CBI revenue, exactly. those persons still have to be paid. How do you pay them? Yeah. yeah. So those are issues. So then we've spoken about uh, do the benefits outweigh the risk, Jadri. So then the next question would be, given the arguments that we've outlined on both sides, would the majority of Vincentian support the establishment of a CBI program? What do you think? We started the discussion by saying, hey, our citizenship shouldn't be for sale. You know, it's not a commodity like that. But I think when you really weigh the economic benefits, when you look at the developments that could be had for the country and the you know, infrastructure and so forth, I think that a lot of incentions would probably side with a CBI program, you know, because like Delana mentioned as well, you know, things like the lower taxation for personal income tax and so forth. When you push those arguments to the general population, they can say, hey, you know, I can do with some more disposable income. You know, I can do with having hotels here and, you know, boosting tourism and all of that. So when you put all of that to the forefront, I think most incentions would lean towards having an established CBI program for the benefit of the country. We have discussed some of the benefits and advantages and say, hey, it's something that St. Vincent should benefit from. We try to put forward both the merits and, and, and the demerits or the, the risk associated with a CBI program. We hope we've done so in a way that will facilitate hearty discussion in our population, our regional international listeners. Wrapping up this discussion, because you know, after we talk about <laughs> issues like this, it's usually time for a refill, yeah, you know? Yeah. And then after that, we're going to move on to our second topic, which surrounds the recent CCJ ruling pertaining to Guyana. As a nice follow-up to, to our discussion on CCJ last week. Going on to our second topic, as I said in the beginning, we're just going to touch on the CCJ ruling uh, that took place on the 13th, that's last week. It essentially dealt with cross-dressing in Guyana. It was a judgment delivered by the CCJ through the appellate jurisdiction. And after hearing oral arguments on the 28th of June, earlier in the year, the CCJ ruled that the law um, in respect of that particular prohibition should be struck from the laws of Guyana. And just to give a bit of a background, February 2009, seven persons were arrested under section 153, subsection 1, I, I believe paragraph uh, 47 of the Summary Jurisdiction Act, um, 1893. The law essentially made it a criminal offense for a man or woman to appear in public while dressed in clothing of the opposite sex for an improper purpose. Now, to quote exactly, the section prohibits uh, every person who, being a man in a public way or public place, for any improper purpose, appears in, a fe in female attire, or being a woman in a public way or public place, for any improper purpose, appears in a male attire. Oh, just the word in you know, that sounds so archaic. It sounds it sounds so, so medieval. Yeah, exactly. And that is one of the arguments that the um, the appellants eventually made that the law, you know, it was not up to modern times. It was uh, you know pre-independence um, law that remained under the saving clause in the constitution. And so that was one of the arguments that was being made 
why it should be abolished or prohibited or struck from the books, really. And um, it's a summary offense, so it proceeded to the magistrate's court and the magistrate dealt with it and the persons were convicted and fined. I think most of them were fined 7,500 Guyanese dollars, which is about 85 EC. <laughs> like or, next to nothing, really. Yeah, or 30 US, you know. I think one guy was fined 19,500. But what happened as well is that the magistrate also said essentially that, you know, the men needed to go to church and they were confused and they needed to give their life to Jesus, you know. I would have a bit more on that a bit later on. Mm -hmm. But in 2010, four of the men, they took it to the High Court. And uh, the Society Against Sexual Orientation Discrimination, along with them, they filed a constitutional action arguing that the law was inconsistent with the Guyana Constitution and essentially violated their rights to equality, freedom of expression, and non-discrimination. So the arguments that they were making is that, well, firstly, they looked at an Antiguan case that went to the Privy Council, okay. which decided that legal provisions which interfere with individual rights must be formulated with sufficient precision to enable a citizen to regulate his conduct. In other words, right. what you're saying is basically we have to be able to read the law and know how we are to act in accordance with the law. It can't, exactly. it can't just be like you, you don't understand what's going on because how then can I start to act in accordance if I'm not sure what the law is saying? Exactly, yeah. So the ordinary man must be able to identify what his conduct should be when he reads the law. Okay. It shouldn't just be for legal experts to say, okay, you know what, this could mean this, this could mean that. Mm -hmm. So it must be precise enough that the ordinary man would be able to understand and know what he should do. Uh, that's one of the arguments that they were making when they went to the High Court and the Court of Appeal and then eventually to the CCJ. So they argued that this archaic 1893 law, which used terms like improper purpose and male attire and female attire, like Delano was saying in the beginning that, you know, just from the sound of it, you could see how it sounds, you know, archaic and so forth and confusing, you know, vague. So they were saying that against that Privy Council ruling, this clause was not precise enough. It was just a bit too vague. Mm -hmm. So they also argued that it infringed certain constitutional rights, like the freedom of expression, as I said, in that they said that the way that they dressed was an expression of you know their, their personality themselves their identity and prohibiting the way that they dress is a violation of their right to express themselves so that was another another argument that they raised and one of the court's considerations was the fact that the law was an archaic law like i said and it was an, enacted in 1893 as a part of the vagrancy laws of the time of the oh, okay, of the okay. pre-emancipation era right mm -hmm. And uh, that law was from a different time. Very much so. That was a different time. <laughs> That's something that jurists say all the time. And I think Justice Saunders might have opined on it in this very case as well. But, you know, the law is of people, you know. So the law has to grow as we grow, as society develops, and as, as society advances, the law has to develop. You can't just keep it frozen and in a bubble and tucked away back in time. Uh, another important aspect of it that I don't think a lot of persons... I mean, you, you, you hear the headline that, you know, oh, the law in Guyana was struck from the books, uh, cross-dressing, transgenders, and etc., etc. But another important legal aspect of it, they wanted the CCJ to examine the savings clause in the Constitution. And, uh, you know, a savings clause is essentially a law that keeps the law as it was back in that particular time. So it's, it makes it difficult to challenge in any future constitutional action. Okay, in terms of the interpretation? Right. So they're saying you have to leave it as is. Okay. And you have difficulties with this in um, different areas in criminal law and so as well in Barbados and in Jamaica in terms of the um, death penalty and all of that. Uh, I think those are general savings clauses which they 
say need constitutional change, mm -hmm. but they argue that can't be challenged because it's a part of the savings clause in the constitution. But I think if I'm not mistaken, the CCJ ruled against that in Barbados just this year as well, I think. That's some good character, you know, because to be honest, when I read the, the, the exact summary of the judgment, I was kind of savings thing I'm talking about, or, you know, yeah. you know, one of bank account <laughs> thing, you know, so thanks for the clarity there. Yeah, so that was, that was another thing. So when this judgment came out, it was important for all those factors because the CCJ held that, hey, it is unconstitutional and despite the saving clause being there, once it infringes on your fundamental uh, constitutional rights, mm -hmm. it should not be allowed, right? Basically, it's incompatible. Right, it's in, exactly, it's mm -hmm. incompatible. So the, the next thing that I think people would ask or, or want to find out is, you know, what does this mean for the LGBT community? I was gonna, I was gonna ask yeah. that because, you know, we have headlines like these, whenever we, you know, I think there was a similar case in Trinidad recently uh, in, in the High Court there. The people kind of come alive, you know, we, we, oh, saw, yeah. we, we, we saw the different movements in the US and so on, so we feel like if it's the Caribbean's time to kind of get involved in this whole LBGT fight. Yeah, that's true. And um, I think in our headlines locally as well, you see these. Um, recently, we saw some guys on Facebook who are, you know, being. Um, oh, yeah, the guys who are dressing uh, um, like females yeah, in Kingston. And they, and so well. they were being um, uh, well, accosted and chased right. and, and fought. You know, we, we still, in, in small, especially in small islands, I've found where we're not as liberal in terms of um, the acceptance. Of, of, of um, LBGT rights. So we, we, we have that difficulty still at that we as small countries are still grappling with. That's another aspect as well because in the wider English-speaking Caribbean there aren't any laws that specifically target non-discrimination and you know identity of persons how they associate themselves and so forth. I think only Cuba, I'm not sure if it's an actual law but I think Cuba allows for gender reassignment once you've done um, a sex change operation right and that's that's Cuba. Ob obviously the territories um, under the UK and Netherlands and so forth would be a bit more um, liberal as well but in terms of the smaller Caribbean islands, we have no laws that specifically examine gender identity and gender expression. But going back to what it means, at least, you know, even at the lower courts, before the CCG ruling, the High Court and the Court of Appeal, they affirm pretty much that expressing yourself through your clothing or expressing your gender identity, I should say, was not itself a crime. And for it to be a crime, it had to be in a public place and for an improper purpose. And of course, like we said, that raised concerns about what does improper purpose mean and so forth. And the CCJ pretty much... My name was just lying on the corner. I <laughs> <laughs> suppose they were, you don't know. Right, yeah. So, you know, they were saying it allowed police and so forth to just exercise their own, you know, subjective interpretation of what it could mean. And they, they needed some clarity on that. So the CCJ also was saying stuff like um, an improper purpose. It, you can't criminalize someone for their state of mind, you know. There are no tests in place for what improper proper purpose meant. All those factors led to it being, you know, struck out as unconstitutional. And, uh, you know, with that ruling, there are already calls being made in Guyana. You know, they're saying, oh, well, you know, it opens Pandora's box, so to speak, you know, like, okay, like, you know, now that we've had this victory, other changes need to be made. And uh, they're even calling for, you know, separate cells in jail to mm -hmm. say, well, we shouldn't be with the male population or the female mm -hmm. population, you know, we have and so forth. Bathroom right, and so on. exactly. And so forth. You know, that's, that's where it's at. It's something that the LGBT community in Guyana, they're happy about, obviously, and they're hoping that other nations would adopt this um, and adopt this more, and so forth and become yeah, more liberal and, and more progressive, yeah, as they would put it. As they would put it. Separate and apart from that, though, what would, um, what would the outcome, apart from lobbying struck, struck down, what, 
what did other than moral victory did did the applicants walk away with anything financial <coughs> anything like that? Yeah, they were awarded damages. Legal costs as well. Yeah. So okay. legal costs all the way from um from, from all the which previous, previous, from the previous yeah. process. Okay. So that's basically a summary of, of the case in Guyana. in Guyana and the CCG ruling on it. We imagine in the future we're going to be seeing similar cases coming before um not just the. CCJ but probably the local courts and um, it's important to note as well that this case was in the appellate jurisdiction of the CCJ and not the original jurisdiction, jurisdiction. which pertains to um, uh, the revised treaty of Shagaramas. Correct. So you know this is something that Guyana, that CCJ heard because Guyana is one of the four countries that has signed on to CCJ in the appellate jurisdiction. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, this brings us to the end of our second episode of a lawyer and a policy analyst walking to a bar. I am Delano D'Souza, the policy analyst. And I'm Jadrick Cummings, the lawyer. See you next week.